We're in the game of life. We've been talking about this over the last few weeks, this series that we're doing. This week we're talking about play, which is maybe something you've never heard preached in church before. I know that I have seldom heard sermons on it myself. I want to begin um, with a story. I remember some years ago when my kids were young, we got invited to a birthday party at one of those bouncy castle places. It was basically a, a big warehouse full of jump castles and obstacle courses, and we were having a great time. Uh, I'm one of those dads who doesn't generally sit on the sidelines. I was out there with my son at the top of the biggest bouncy castle there was, sliding down the slide, landing in that, that pit at the bottom that you land in and bounce all around it, and we just kept doing that over and over. We were having a great time. I noticed after a while there was a a young boy standing there looking at me with a very concerned look on his face. A little bit of shock, a little bit of not sure. Um, I recognized him as a new member, his family as new members of the church. And, and, you know, he's watching me. So I just kind of gave him a wave and gave him a smile and went back up for another round of slide down the bouncy house. Well, my son has a a much greater stamina for such things than I do, so eventually I made my way out to the lobby to just catch my breath, to get a drink of water, and that's when he cornered me. It was the little boy who I had seen who had that shocked look on his face, and and now he's got me between the water fountain and him with only my back to the wall, right? And, And I had that sort of sinking feeling I get sometimes when when a theological discussion is about to happen, or when a theological showdown is about to happen. And, and he said to me, you're our priest, and you're playing. Are you allowed to have fun? And, and I paused, and, and I learned to do this. I, I suspect, I hope, I sent up sort of a quick, oh Lord, give me your assistance kind of a prayer. That's usually what I do in a theological showdown. And, and I responded back to him and I said, Yes, I work for Jesus, so it's okay for me to play. Jesus is the most fun of them all. And his whole body relaxed. And then he smiled and he just went running back to the bouncy houses to play. I work for Jesus. Jesus loves to play. He's the most fun of them all. We're doing this series on life, and we're trying to cover sort of all the gamuts of life. We're basing it out of Jesus' words in John chapter 10, verse 10. He said that the thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy, but I came that you might have life, and have life in abundance, or to have it abundantly. The picture there is of like a swollen stream overflowing its banks. This life that Jesus has brought us is such an abundant kind of life that it's meant to overflow us. Jesus talks a lot about life. The scripture often calls it eternal life. And unfortunately, we have this notion often that eternal life generally means later, after our bodies expire, when they cease functioning, and we go to heaven, you know, up there to the good place. But when Jesus is talking about life, he does mean that, by the way. But he means a life that begins now, in our day-in, day-out existence. 
that will extend on forever, but it invades our sphere of influence. It invades our everydayness. It invades us now. We say this every week, and we'll say it again in the Lord's Prayer just before communion. We'll say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, where? On earth as it is in heaven. We're inviting the life of Jesus who died on the cross and was resurrected. We're inviting the life of Jesus to fill us now and to be with us now and to be in us now. And I think it's important that as we're talking about life, we recognize that includes everything. Not just what we would call the sacred, certainly the secular. There's no divide in the Christian life. It can all be sacred with Jesus in it, including our play. So let me make a profound theological statement. Jesus loves to play. He is the funnest of them all. That's not just for a little child's theology. That actually is important for us adults who deal with the battles and the bruises of life for us to recognize. We have this false notion, I think, sometimes that God's only interested in the big things or the crises things or the serious things, those things that are religious or meaningful, and he's not interested in the ordinary and the inane and the small. But the gospel lesson absolutely contradicts that, right? What does he say? He says, let the little children come to me and don't worry if they're noisy. And don't worry if they're messy. And don't worry if they don't produce at a macro scale or affect the economy or world politics. That's not the qualifier. He says, let them come. Let them come. He's involved in everything. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Now, why is that so hard for us to get? Why is it so complicated? I love something that Pastor Mark Buchanan writes in his book, The Rest of God. It's a great book. I highly recommend it. He says that we live in this age in which we Christians, particularly of all tribes, pay homage to the God of utility. Little g, God of utility. We seek to justify the things we do on the grounds of their usefulness. Is this useful or not? And, and he goes on in the book to describe this panel discussion that, that he uh, was facilitating between these pastors who were dealing with the issue of should Christians, should Christians go to the movies, right? It maybe seems like a silly thing to many of us, but this is a, a big question in a lot of Christian circles. And the two different groups were arguing from sort of different perspectives, but they both took sort of a misiological track on this. The one group said this. They said... Well, you know, we should go to movies because movies are a medium for culture and and we need to understand our culture in order to speak to it. And then they said, imagine if you were a missionary in a foreign culture and you were unwilling to understand the way they do things. You would be less effective. Now, the other group said, no, 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 we really shouldn't get involved in watching these movies. You know, this is the culture's medium of godlessness. And so if we were to participate in them, it would be like going into a missionary situation in a foreign culture and participating in voodoo or the witch doctor. We would lose our authority. Now, both arguments might sound like they have some merit. 
But what Buchanan realized later on, and I think he's absolutely right, is that they were both arguing the same thing, different perspectives from one same position. And that was from utilitarianism. Each group wants to justify their views on the grounds of usefulness. Either watching movies makes us more shrewd or it makes us less holy. What's missing in all that is a theology of play. An understanding that God isn't just about usefulness. God is about all things. All things. And so some things we do, we should do just for the sheer enjoyment of them. Ice cream. Jumping in swimming pools. A day at the beach. A good novel that you just can't put down. Really, a good movie. Sidewalk chalk. I, I love that I came here and our children's family service was out there. And the first thing, I almost got hit with a bow and arrow, right? As it's <laughs> flying through the air. That's what church should be like for little kids. None of those things, ice cream and sidewalk chalk and, and days at the beach, they, they don't affect the world in a sense of having these grand enjoyable, or excuse me, these grand effects, right? They're not utilitarian, but they are fun, and they bring enjoyment into our hearts. And, and we may just experience Jesus' life in the midst of them. And we actually may enjoy Jesus' life in the midst of those things, often more than we do sitting in church in our best clothes and acting appropriately and all that. And that may be why there's a disconnect for many of our lives. We think God's confined to the church building and not to those places of our humanness, including the place of play. Think about the Pharisees, the Pharisees of Jesus' day and the Pharisees of today. They never understand this. The Pharisees constantly got angry at Jesus. Why? Because he was going to parties. And they were, they were saying, you eat too much. You drink too much. Why are you hanging out with those folks? And they really got mad at him with the way he handled the Sabbath day. Which they had put in all sorts of rules and restrictions and regulations. They were furious with him about the Sabbath in particular. See, they had taken this gift that God had given, this day to cease from working. Right? It's a day to enjoy God's love and a day to rejoice in worshipful celebration, to enjoy family. And they filled it with rules and restrictions that were designed to keep them from doing what? Living too much. Being too human in the midst of a day God gave for humans to enjoy. I think the Pharisees of that day, their view of God was that he was only a rigid, unpleasable taskmaster. Maybe that's your view of God, too. And I would say it'd be hard to find that God in Jesus, who is the clearest picture of the invisible God we have. He is the image of the invisible God, the scripture tells us. They didn't realize Sabbath is as much for play as it is for rest. I mean, think about our Old Testament lesson there, right? Ecclesiastes chapter 3. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And then you get this long litany of things. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a a time to pluck down what is planted. And on it goes. It's this, this poem, this beautiful poem about the totality of life. It's seasons. 
its joys, its sorrows, its hardships, its activities. And while the word play is not specifically in there, you can infer it. Particularly in the lines, there's a time to laugh and there's a time to dance. In other words, there's a time to celebrate the sheer goodness of life. Even though it's not utilitarian, there is a time to play. There is a time to play. My wife and I were just away this summer on sabbatical. And and we we went to some marvelous places, including Israel and Rome, and, and saw some of the really foundational things of our faith, places in the scriptures that are now really alive to me in some new ways. And we studied and we worshiped and we fasted and we practiced spiritual disciplines. The hardest thing for me to do was to play. Because there was a little bit of guilt under there. Like, this is not using the time wisely. And you might be one of those kind of folks, too. Where to just relax and enjoy and to just be is more complicated than to stay busy, busy, go, go, go. Functional, functional, functional. Because what I discovered often in the downtime that was intended to play, where my utilitarianism came down, where my sort of workaholic tendencies came down, is a lot of the other stuff crept up. And sometimes it was sheer delight, and other times it was, oh no, there's a a kind of anxiety there that I'm not comfortable with. Maybe you understand what that is. I was sitting one afternoon, and I was looking through the scriptures, just sort of thinking about this. And, and I came to, like, Lord, why is it so hard for me to play? And I started thinking about the Christian life and about what it's comprised of. And my thoughts went to the Galatians uh, chapter there, Galatians 5, which is this comparison, right, of what freedom looks like and what it doesn't look like. And you get this comparison of a life walking with and in the Spirit, the life Jesus promises us, with a life in the flesh, sort of the selfish life. And, and, you know, there's this list of things that are according to the flesh. It's an uncomfortable list to hear. Um, but, but what's amazing is that the counteraction to this list of things that are according to our flesh, things of selfishness, things that are basically either utilitarian, it's all about me, or me getting done what I want done, or hedonistic, running them up. The counteraction that's given is not a list of rules. It's not a list of to-dos in how to counteract these things that are of the flesh. It's not law that's given. It doesn't say the fruit of the Spirit is being frigid or sexless or pleasureless or boring or uptight or serious or religious or hyper-useful. And that's important. That's incredibly important. It says the fruit of the Spirit is love. And joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Against these things there is no law. See, what happens when you experience the radical, powerful love of Jesus Christ for you is that you begin to recognize that I'm loved not based on my usefulness. I'm loved not based on, on my religiousness. I'm loved based on the fact that He offers grace freely to all those who know their need of it who know their need of forgiveness, who know their need of God's love. When you begin to taste that, the fruit of that is now I can love him because why? I was first loved. And then I can begin to love other people. Why? Because that's what he's like. And guess what else? I can begin to love myself in a healthy way. 
which may include a little bit of play here and there, which may include some uselessness for the sheer joy of it. And, and that is the result of love, isn't it? I think it's very intentional that it says love, joy. Love and then joy. Because from love comes joy. And I think at the heart of play is often just joy. And if we're unwilling to play, we may not actually taste the fruit of God's joy. The thing we need so desperately is to recognize how wonderfully, powerfully, radically, fully, completely, intensely loved that we are. That's grace. That is grace. What if our willingness willingness to trust God like little children in all areas of life, including and maybe especially in our play, is what feeds the virtues of wonder? And, And if we don't have wonder in our life, it may be that we've not invited him into our play. If we don't have simplicity in our life, well, perhaps we need to invite him into our play. If we don't have those childlike qualities within us, then we may need to invite him into our play. Because I think that's what prepares us for the abundance of resurrection. And it's what prepares us for the restored earth. The restored heavens and earth. Let me, let me close with this. One of my favorite books. This is C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It is a classic. And, and the part I'm going to read comes after the two girls, Lucy and Susan, witnessed the terror of Aslan's death at the stone table at the hands of the white witch. And so they also witness his resurrection. Here we go. O children, said the lion, I feel my strength coming back to me. O children, catch me if you can. In fact, why don't you close your eyes? Because sometimes our hearts come alive more when the eyes are closed. And just listen. Children, I feel my strength coming back to me. O children, catch me if you can. He stood for a second, his eyes very bright, his limbs quivering, lashing himself with his tail. And then he made a leap high over their heads and landed on the other side of the stone table. Laughing, though she didn't know why, Lucy scrambled over it to reach him. Aslan leaped again. A mad chase began. Round and round the hilltop he led them, now hopelessly out of their reach, now letting them almost catch his tail, now diving between them, now tossing them in the air with his huge and beautifully velveted paws, and catching them again, and now stopping unexpectedly, so that all three of them rolled over together in a happy, laughing heap of fur and arms and legs. It was such a romp as no one has ever had except in Narnia. And whether it was more like playing with a thunderstorm or playing with a kitten, Lucy could never make up her mind. And the funny thing was that when all three finally lay together panting in the sun, the girls no longer felt in the least tired or hungry or thirsty. Isn't that beautiful? Whether they were playing with a thunderstorm or with a kitten, they could never really tell. But when it was over, 
They were no longer tired or hungry or thirsty. It's a picture of restoration. And what is at the heart of what we truly need in an abundance of life? Restoration. Will you let him play with you in the days or weeks ahead? Will you invite him on your next bike ride or your walk on the beach or the next time you go surfing or you're playing a card game? You may experience something in the midst of that that causes your heart not only to know how loved you are, but then to have wonder and restoration. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, would you stir in us, would you stir in us our hearts longing for love and your provision of it. We thank you for the cross, Jesus. We thank you for our forgiveness. We thank you for new life, for resurrection life. Jesus, we call out, we cry out for this life you promise in abundance. Not because we deserve it or we've earned it, but simply because you offer it freely to those who know their need of it. So Lord, this morning we just say yes in our hearts to you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.